saved today in John 20, verses 24 through 29. This is a famous passage, and, and hopefully we'll be able to shed a little light on it today. John 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we Come to your word today, we thank you for it, we ask that we might learn from it, we might be changed by it, that you might use it to work in our lives, to draw us to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There are people who have become so associated with one of their characteristics that becomes part of their name. And so uh, to see this, this morning we're going to play my version of the name game. And so I'm going to tell you part of a name and you're going to fill in the blank. Okay, this is not hard. You can get this. So first one is Little Orphan Annie. Most of these are older. We don't do this today. I was trying to look for current examples and there just aren't a whole lot of them. Something the Kid. Billy, Billy the Kid. Calamity? Too Tall? Only guys, okay? It's obviously a football player. I was like, I was wondering about that one. Buffalo? Buffalo Bill. Something the Ripper? Doubting? You know, that's the easiest one there. Doubting Thomas. I feel bad for Thomas. For 2,000 years, his name has lived on, but is he known for his heroic missionary efforts or his great faith? No, his claim to fame comes from one well-recorded instance here in John 20, Thomas doubting the claims of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a tough way to go through eternity. And Thomas is universally known as Doubting Thomas. And I think it's a tad unfair. You may expect me to try and defend Thomas, and, and I actually thought about doing that and giving this sermon the title, Doubting Thomas on Doubting Thomas. But I didn't. John MacArthur, a very gifted preacher from California, has written a really good book called Twelve Ordinary Men. He has a companion, Twelve Ordinary Women. And it's a book of biographical sketches on the disciples. And this is what he has to say about Thomas. Thomas was 
uh, somewhat a negative person. He was a worrywart, a brooder, tended to be anxious and angst-ridden. He was like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh. He anticipated the worst all the time. Pessimism, rather than doubt, seems to have been his besetting sin. So MacArthur says, not so much as a doubter as a pessimist. Find something very similar in J.I. Packer's uh, fairly recent book called Never Beyond Hope. And Packer, I have to say, is pretty hard on Thomas, much harder than John MacArthur. He points out that Thomas was also called Didymus. Some of your versions have that. The ESV just says the twin, which is what that means. And uh, in Greek, Didymus means twin, and in Aramaic and Hebrew, Thomas means twin. So basically, uh, twin who is called twin is how that reads. And who's the other twin? You know, we don't know. Maybe Matthew or uh, James. We have absolutely no idea. Maybe he just looked like somebody, you know. Um, but he infers that Thomas was the less bright of the two, and he lived with some kind of inferiority complex uh, as a result of being the less bright of the twins. So I was going to ask Dave Dorst about that personal experience <laughs> being a twin that, you know, of course, the, the, the first one would be the sharper one, right? I'll check with Jonathan later. Um, the, uh, you know, it doesn't have any of that in here at all, so I apologize. Um, but anyway, he says Thomas is not only suffers from gloom, and, 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 but also he has issues of ego and pride and resentment. Whatever you make of all of that, it's clear that Thomas is a psychologist's dream. But it's all based on the most slender evidence imaginable. Because the Bible doesn't actually substantiate any of that. Whatever we make of it, and it can make for really good sermon material, most of it's not there. And it is possible to be way too hard on Thomas. On the other side, uh, some people make Thomas into be this kind of a hero. And, uh, you know, they say the problem with some Christians is they're too gullible, you know, which is true. And uh, they just don't ask the hard questions. And uh, Thomas is prepared to stand on his own two feet and ask the hard questions, and he wants some evidence before he'll believe. And I'm not convinced that either of these characterizations are correct but I think they both contain elements of truth. Thomas was a doubter, but that's not necessarily always bad. And he was also one who asked hard questions, and that's not necessarily always good. And we're quick to hold Thomas up as an example of what not to do. But my guess is that a lot of us actually identify with Thomas. And we identify with his doubts far more than we would care to admit. And maybe we're hard on Thomas because he pushes us up against a part of our lives that we don't want to be reminded of. And so if you're a Thomas in hiding, perhaps today you'll learn enough from him to come out of the closet of doubt. You know, after all, Jesus deals with Thomas here, and he deals with him so calmly and so gently that Thomas developed such a strong faith that church history says he took the good news of life in Christ 
all the way to India. And he is really the, considered the patron saint of India. And so let's dive into this text. Let's see what the Bible actually says about Thomas. And we get a couple little pictures here. And the first one is of Thomas the absentee. Thomas the absentee, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So first we have to look at this phenomenon that Thomas was absent. Jesus, on the evening of his resurrection, has appeared to Mary Magdalene, he has appeared to John and Peter, and he has appeared to the other disciples. Judas, of course, wasn't there, and we find out Thomas is missing. So there's ten disciples in the upper room when Jesus appears to them. We find that at the beginning of chapter 20. And there's an obvious lesson here, that in being absent, for whatever reason, Thomas missed the blessing. I think that's a fair deduction to draw from the evidence of Scripture. He wasn't there. He missed the blessing. What did he miss? He missed the resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now, you never know what you're going to miss when you don't come to church. Great uh, English preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you know, we pray for revival. We pray for the outpouring of God's Spirit and Someday that's going to come. It might come in the great fashion it came in the 18th century. It might come the same way it came in the 19th century. It could come, and if you're not here, you're going to be kicking yourself for the rest of your life. Just a thought. Don't miss the means of grace. Don't miss the assembling of God's people together. Now, in order to understand Thomas's absence, I think we need to examine a little bit of what the Scripture might say or what the Scripture doesn't say about Thomas's character. First account of Thomas uh, in the Gospel of John is in chapter 10, no, chapters 10 and 11, the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and uh, Jesus, if you remember, he'd gone across the Jordan River uh, to the area where John had been baptizing miles away from Jerusalem. And uh, John describes that time and that place of his ministry as one of the most fruitful periods of his public ministry. Many, many people came to faith as a consequence of what Jesus did on the eastern side, the other side of the Jordan. And then they got news that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is sick. And it's obvious uh, from John's gospel that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are close to Jesus' heart. He seems to have stayed with them in Bethany on several occasions. But instead of rushing off to visit Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he continues with his ministry in Judea, and it completely puzzles the disciples. And the beginning of John 11 says, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, you remember what happened. News comes that Lazarus has actually died. And the disciples have to be wondering, what about that illness that does not lead to death part? He's dead. You didn't go. And uh, they can't figure it out, as I'm sure none of us would have been able to figure it out. And, uh, but he dies, and Jesus says, now let's go to Bethany. And again, they got to be, you know, you got your days mixed up or... Something's not right. But they're a little unsure, and they tell Jesus, in effect, 
The last time you were there, they tried to stone you. And at this point, John interjects with the first words that we have of Thomas. So we know he wasn't a coward because he's the guy who said in John eleven sixteen. so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. It appears that he meant it. Now, you can interpret that as pessimism, as gloom. You can look at those words and see despair. You know, everything's dark. If we go back to Bethany, it's going to be curtains. We're going to be stoned. We're going to be killed. Let's just go with him, die, and get it over with. But it's also possible to interpret Thomas's words differently because the evidence did seem to show that in going back to Bethany, Jesus might face what he'd faced before which is the last time he uh, was opposed. He, he came under opposition, said they tried to stone him. And uh, so now you have to admire Thomas's courage, his willingness to stand for Jesus, for the cause of Christ, his willingness to go, even if it costs your life. You have to admire that. Being a disciple of Christ means laying down your life, if that's what it takes to be with Jesus. And I think you have to admire his commitment. Thomas is not a starry-eyed romantic. This is realism. And as far as Thomas is concerned, it could cost him his life. And I think you have to admire that. We don't talk about courage much anymore, but apparently Thomas had it. And Thomas's love for Jesus shows up again. We jump to John 14. This time in the upper room, Jesus had said to the disciples, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. And he adds those words, you know the way to where I'm going. That's a, it, that passage ends with that famous statement of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But it's in that passage, in uh, verse 5, John 14, 5, Thomas makes his second contribution uh, in the Gospels. And we have there, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And I think those are words of an honest man. The rest of the disciples are just as perplexed, but only Thomas dares to speak out. We all know people like that. When nobody else is willing to ask the question, there's always one guy willing to ask the question. And they're like, Thomas, go ahead, ask the question, you know. And uh, they'll keep asking. They won't let it go. They'll just keep asking until it makes sense. And that's Thomas. He's a thoughtful man. He's not easily stampeded. He doesn't make a confession of faith unless he deeply believes it to be true. Others can have a glib, easy faith, uh, comes without reflection and thought, not Thomas. His faith is won uh, through the agony of struggle, personal struggle. And essentially, I think what Thomas is telling Jesus here in John 14 is, you know, we'll never get to where you're going. We'll lose the way. We don't know how to get there. And whatever else you may think about Thomas, I think here's a man who loves Jesus. Here's a man who wants to be with Jesus, wants to be in his presence. And the thought that most concerns Thomas in John 14 is that there's going to come a time when he won't get to be with Jesus anymore. And he has fallen in love so much with Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior that the thought of Jesus' absence the thought of not being able to be with Jesus again is something that immensely bothers him. Of course, you can psychoanalyze the passage and interpret gloom and despair and say he was slow and wasn't quick on the uptake and the lesser of the twins. and You can do all that psychobabble. 
But I say the evidence is very, very slim. And I think the one clear thing about Thomas is here is a man who loves Jesus. The thought of losing him causes great pain. The thought of not being in Jesus' presence anymore is something that just distresses him a great deal. And Thomas isn't there on that first evening in Jerusalem when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. And that's the next passage in which Thomas is mentioned. He's, he's not there. He's the absentee. Why isn't he there? That's the big question. Why isn't Thomas there? Now, what's he doing? Where is he? And it's very tempting to allow yourself to say, well, you know, he was off brooding. He was lost in the depths of depression. Thomas was engulfed by clouds of darkness, and he wanted to wallow in self-pity, and he didn't want to be in the company of others, least of all those who would be asking him all kinds of questions. You know, misery likes its own company. Maybe. We all deal with our emotions differently. And apparently, Thomas's grief, for some reason, had driven him off to be by himself. Maybe he broke down under the pressure of the last few days, and his way of dealing with problems is to be alone. He wasn't one to act like he believed when he really didn't. And you can really let yourself go here. And again, it would make for a great sermon, but the evidence is very, very slim. I mean, for all we know, there was a lot of traffic that night, and he just missed it. doesn't really tell us. We have to be very careful about reading all that stuff in to the Bible. It just says he missed it. The only thing we know for sure is that he wasn't there. The Bible doesn't tell us why he wasn't there. And he missed a great blessing, whatever the reason. It may have been due to his personality. It may have been psychological, emotional, spiritual, or some combination of all three. It may have been psychosomatic. There's all kinds of explanations. It could have been stubbornness that accounts for him not being there. We don't know. All we know for sure is that he wasn't there. And because he wasn't there, he missed a great blessing. Because if he was there, maybe that should be if he were there, Check with Bonnie on my English. The, uh, there'd be no need for the next verse, which is verse 25, because that verse shows us Thomas as the skeptic. Verse 25, the skeptic says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of, his, of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is the so-called doubting of Thomas. According to J.I. Packer, uh, he, Thomas is guilty of what he calls willful skepticism. I've been trying to follow his line of thought. It's not easy. Packer's not usually easy. And uh, I'm very disinclined to disagree with him because he's really smart. Um, and I'm trying to follow his line of thought, and I think I get it, and I would explain it like this. When you know you're wrong, sometimes you know your spouse tells you you're wrong, and there's something in you that doesn't really want to admit it. So you go on this long verbal expedition to justify your position in order that you may come out looking as the one who's principled and clever and resourceful. You may never do that, but I've heard that it happens. You know, some Christians are just too gullible. 
They don't consider the real complexities of the issues. And it's all very well and good that these ten disciples to say that they had seen Jesus, but obviously they hadn't asked the hard questions. And now here's Thomas and willful skepticism. And there's no sense that Thomas hopes the disciples are right. He just refuses to give them the benefit of the doubt. He places actually an undue burden on Jesus to prove himself. He believes he has good reason for his positions. When the disciples come and say, we have seen the Lord, he says, I have to see it. If I don't see it, I won't believe. And I can't begin to imagine what's going on in Thomas's head. Absent on a Sunday, eight days have gone by, and can you imagine the torment? He'd been a disciple for three years, and his life has all of a sudden come to an end, or at least it feels that way. What's the future? He doesn't know. I mean, when you get bad news, when somebody calls you into the office and says, look, I'm sorry, but we got to let you go, and you had dreams and aspirations and hopes, and everything crashes down, I think that's what Thomas felt like. And the next few days, you don't know which end is up. And all kinds of stuff floods into your mind. Can you imagine the stress on Thomas during this time? Maybe what he's doing. Maybe where he was, off by himself, wondering what he's going to do with the rest of his life. We don't know. We tend to forget what it was like on that first Easter. And I think this is key, because we beat Thomas up pretty good and let everybody else off scot-free. You know, and we need to ask ourselves, if we had been there, would we have believed or would we have doubted? To put the question another way, what would it take to convince you that uh, someone you loved had come back to life after being dead for three days? Suppose it was a close friend or a family member and you saw them die. What would it take to convince you is there any way you could be convinced? Rising from the dead isn't common. And if we had been there in Jerusalem, you know, with Matthew and James and John, would we have believed these strange rumors and tales? In answering that question, it helps to remember how those who knew Jesus best reacted to the news of his resurrection because none of the disciples believed at first. Luke 24 now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Now I think there's a certain amount of male-female stuff going on there. Four women come back. We've seen Jesus. Yeah. I mean, very simply, they're not expecting a resurrection. It's true that Jesus had predicted he'd be put to death and then raised to life, but his followers didn't get it. The resurrection is the furthest thing from their minds. Forget his predictions, forget all that brave talk. They'd given up. And who was worried about a resurrection? It was the Jewish leaders. They persuaded the Romans to seal the tomb, not the disciples. The enemies of Jesus feared something might happen. His friends weren't expecting anything. You know, and there's different ways to respond to sorrow and grief and tragedy. Some seek comfort in the company of friends. I think this is probably most common. They want people around to help talk them out. Others prefer to be alone 
with their thoughts, such as it seems was Thomas. Maybe Thomas realized more than the others what's going to happen. Maybe it's true he was more deeply hurt. He wasn't with the disciples. Um, you know, everything he had, he'd given to Jesus, and Jesus had died. And he still loves and cares and wants to believe, but his heart is broken. I don't think Thomas is a bad man, nor do I think his doubt is actually sinful. Deep inside, I think he wants to believe. Don't put Thomas down too hard. We've all been in that same place. Some people are satisfied with the testimony of others, and some aren't. And Thomas wasn't. Did he doubt the truthfulness of the others? No, I don't think so. I think he knew they believed they'd seen Jesus. That's just not enough for him. Lots of people think they see things. Thomas, you know, perhaps he thought they'd seen a ghost. But he couldn't live with a second-hand faith. He had to see for himself. And that's what he says. Unless I place my hand in his side, I will never believe. And there's more than doubt there. I think there's love and sorrow and pain and a tiny grain of hope. And Thomas stands for all time as the one man who most desperately wanted to believe if only he could be sure. And can you blame him? Would you have been any different? Probably not. Which means that Jesus would come to you the same way he came to Thomas. So we see Thomas move from being the skeptic to being the challenged. The challenged, verse 26. And praise God, there's an answer for Thomas. There's an answer for us too. The Lord gave Thomas time to think about the situation, eight days to be exact, and Thomas does just that. And he's there with the other disciples, and I suspect he may have even become convinced of the resurrection before the events here. But let's read this, starting at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And hopefully in yours that's verses uh, put in bold. So actually look that part up, and that's what it says. It doesn't say don't doubt. It says do not disbelieve. But believe. You could also translate it, I think, as don't be unbelieving, but be believing. Because it's the same word that's used. Just one has a negative put on it. So he's here with the disciples. The doors are shut, and Jesus appears. He utters the same words he did the last time he appeared to him Peace be with you. And then he immediately speaks to Thomas. And he says, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The first question I had was, how did Jesus know? Who's, he been, who's been talking to Jesus? We don't know. Probably no one. Jesus just knew. And I think that's a frightening thing and a reassuring thing at the same time. Jesus knew what Thomas had said to the disciples because he knew everything, because he knows your heart and he knows your thoughts and he knows your doubts and he knows your concerns. And if the commentators are right, he knows your willful skepticism. He knows your brooding. He knows your stubbornness to admit that you're wrong even when you know you're wrong and people are telling you that you're wrong and you're just trying to justify yourself so when it all comes out in the wash at the end, you'll at least look like the one who asked the right questions. 
I'm getting at may not happen to you. And Jesus goes straight to him. He says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands uh, and put out your hand. Place it in my side. Maybe we shouldn't be too critical of Thomas's need for evidence. Didn't Jesus in his previous appearance, didn't John tell us all the way back in verse 20 when he had said this, he had showed them they've already seen his side and his hands. When Thomas wasn't there, he showed them his hands and his side. And it's only after the other disciples saw his hands and his side that they believed and rejoiced. There, Thomas isn't much different than all those other disciples. We just make him look bad. It's not as though Jesus is saying that asking for evidence is wrong. It's part of the reason that Jesus appears again and again and again. He's given a testimony, evidence of the resurrection, the reality of his risen body. Now, I have read uh, some commentators say what Jesus is really doing here is shaming Thomas. And John doesn't describe the tone of voice that Jesus uses. I mean, did he speak sternly? Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Was he angry? Was he rebuking or shaming Thomas? Again, it makes for a good sermon, but I'm not buying it. I find it hard to believe. I think what we're actually seeing here is just the opposite. I think we're seeing something of the gentleness of Jesus. Thomas, if this is what you want to see, if this is the evidence you desire, here I am. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Because isn't that the way that Jesus deals with us, even with our own stupidity, even with our foolishness, even with our stubbornness? That one of his attributes that hopefully we love and admire so much is his gentleness. He knows our faults. He knows what we're made of. And whatever the reason for Thomas's absence and the way that Thomas needs evidence, and whether that's right or wrong, Jesus accepts it. And I think we see something here of the largeness of Jesus' heart. It's a heart that loves Thomas. It's a heart that wants to see Thomas fully believe. And so he's saying to Thomas, Thomas, come on now, don't come in unbelief. Come with faith, come with trust, come to me. It's worth noting that Thomas, that Jesus knew all about Thomas's doubts. He knew the storm going on in his heart, and he came just so Thomas could be sure. And Jesus doesn't put him down. You know, he's saying, go ahead, all of you who wonder if it's true, see for yourself. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And there's this wonderful truth here that doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Now, maybe you think I'm also psychoanalyzing here because the evidence for anything about Thomas is pretty slim. But one thing is clear. There's no lectures here. I don't think there's a stern rebuke. There's no chastisement of Thomas. And, and the same for us. If you're a weary soul, confused soul, troubled soul, questioning soul, whatever you are, whatever it is that you're thinking, Jesus is saying to you, come to me. Come to me with your questions. Come to me with your doubts. Come to me with your concerns. Come to me with your demands. I will be able to answer all of them. 
And in the history of the Christian church, the greatest doubters have often become the strongest believers. I think that's why the story of Thomas is in the Bible, so that honest doubters might be encouraged to bring those honest doubts to an empty tomb. And Thomas did. His doubts are washed away by the person of Jesus Christ, alive from the dead. And so we see Thomas the believer. The end verses here, verse 28. Thomas the believer. He may have been slow to believe at first, but he didn't fail to grasp all the implications of Christ's resurrection. Because in verse 28, after all the psychoanalysis uh, analysis has been done, Thomas comes out with these extraordinary words. He says, my Lord and my God. And note, this is the first time in the Gospel of John that anyone has greeted Jesus in this way. Whatever doubts, whatever concerns, whatever frustrations, whatever anger, whatever unbelief, whatever it was that was going on in Thomas's head for those eight days, it's all gone now. Because all that he can see now is the glory of Jesus Christ, and faith has been born, and a heart that now beats by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit has been born in Thomas. And Jesus was not only his Lord, but his God. The evidence is palpable, substantive, and clear. And Thomas's faith rested on solid rock. And it's all right to doubt. But don't let your doubts keep you away. Come to the empty tomb. See for yourself. Come to Jesus. See for yourself. When Thomas saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Doesn't actually say he fell at his feet, but it just sounds better. But it stands as the greatest testimony given by any apostle. It's the highest profession of faith in Christ recorded in any of the Gospels. And it is the climax of John's Gospel. It's all summary from here on out. And it comes from a man who had doubt. And Jesus then says something extraordinary. Verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because what about us? The evidence is still just as substantive, still just as palpable. You can feel it just as clear. We're not there. We're here. 2,000 years have passed. Jesus promises a special blessing to those who believe without seeing. If you're waiting for some sort of mathematical proof that Jesus rose from the dead, I can't give it to you. But the historical record is there for anyone to examine. It contains abundant evidence for those who choose to believe and people who decide not to believe can always find a reason not to believe. But don't let your doubts keep you from Jesus. You can't remain neutral forever. You can bring your doubts to the empty tomb, but you have to make a choice. You can't stay on the fence forever. Either you believe or you don't. This is Communion Sunday. It's a great day to make that choice. It's a wonderful day to stop doubting and start believing. We can all be a part of that. The Lord pronounced the final beatitude on those who do not see and yet believe. And Jesus is telling us what a blessing it is to believe in Jesus, not because we've seen him. We have his written word. 
the infallible, inerrant word of God, we have great joy. Someday we'll share in the likeness of his resurrection. The likeness of his resurrection. We'll get a glorified body. It'll fix all this stuff. Johnny Erickson Tada, she's a quadriplegic, a brilliant painter and author. She says, I know the meaning of that now. It's the time after my death when I'll be on my feet dancing. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in honest-to-goodness, old-fashioned acts of God? It's a good question to ask, I think. Most of us would immediately answer, yes, I, I believe in miracles. I would say the same thing. And if I were to ask you how many miracles you've seen, you might say some, uh, I don't know. I think all of life is a miracle. You might say, you know, I finished my income taxes last night. That's a miracle. Both of those are examples of the English word miracle. But that's not what I mean when I say, do you believe in miracles? I'm not thinking about surprising events of life or difficult projects finally completed. By miracle, I mean those contrary to human possibility events that have no natural explanation. Oh, that kind of miracle. Well, sure, I believe in that kind of miracle. But now you're a little more uncertain. By definition, that kind of miracle doesn't happen every day. They happen very rarely, in fact. And when they do happen, they're very hard to believe because we're not used to them. They don't happen very often. And we can't explain them. We can't uh, understand them. And even in the Bible, that kind of miracle is not an everyday occurrence. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that kind of miracle. It's totally unexplainable by any human or natural means. I think that may be why we don't talk about it very much. We're not sure how it happened. The crucifixion we can understand. We can explain all the details. And we can go and you go back and find that sermon on the crucifixion on the website and, and thank Brian for putting it there. It will tell you in excruciating detail what happened. The resurrection's a different matter. I mean, what do we wear around our neck? A little silver cross. How many of you are wearing a little silver cross today? One, two, four, six. Get your hands up. Okay. About a dozen of us. How many of you are wearing little silver empty tombs? You believe in miracles. Do you believe in the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And thank you, in case you think you have to answer yes because you're in church, that's fine. Put your mind at ease. If you answer no or I'm not sure, you're in good company. A lot of people today aren't sure whether they believe or not. There were a lot of people on that first Sunday after the first Easter who weren't sure either. Folks like Peter and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot and a man whose name has become synonymous with doubt, Thomas. And I wonder this morning if there's someone here and maybe there's been a restlessness in your soul uh, for a week or, or for months or maybe even years. Emptiness, struggling with life without Jesus. You've tried all the broken cisterns of the world and you found them all wanting. And Jesus is saying, as he said to Thomas, come to me. 
Bring your doubts, bring your questions, bring your concerns, bring your troubles, bring your sins. Bring those terrible sins that you don't even want to talk about and you don't want anybody else to know about. Bring those sins. Bring them to me. Jesus says, cast them on me and do it believing and do it with faith and I will give you rest. Rest for tired and troubled souls. You can do that this morning. You can do just that at this table. So do it. Amen. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we come this morning, we are skeptics, we are doubters, we struggle with unbelief, we want to figure everything out and have all the answers and be able to answer all the questions, and we can't. And we're all like Thomas. And Lord, I pray that you would change in our heart what you changed in Thomas's heart, that we would be able to look to Jesus and say, my Lord and my God, and that we would not disbelieve, but believe. Lord, change our hearts, whether we've known you for a long time or we're just getting to know you now. Work in these hearts. Help us to come to this table in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to take the offering now and a song and let all the other kids come back in and then we'll have communion. Our song.